been a joy to be here. Um, I don't preach every Sunday. I'm retired now, but um, about 56 years ago, I was way more nervous at that point than I am today because I came out of this door. One of these doors, my wife and I were married in this very spot right here 56 years ago. <laughs> um, it's a joy to be here uh, today. Um, and I'm especially uh, glad because I saw the time that your service started. And uh, I'm used to preaching till noon. <laughs> so saddle up. And um, I promised Evan I wouldn't do that, that I wouldn't do that. Um, but it's, it, again, it's, it's, it's good to be here. And I, Evan asked me to come, Pastor Evan. I should I call him Evan, but I should, they call you Pastor Evan? Yep. Um, he asked me to come to be here for the celebration of your 130th anniversary. And I think he thought maybe I was there at the start of the church. <laughs> and I would have some good memories to remember. You know, when you're young like Pastor Evan is, us old people that are 80 years old seem like we must have been there that long ago. Um, I want to think this morning about looking back and also looking forward. I, to, I did a little research on the history of the, of the church and uh, some fascinating experiences that maybe some of you don't know, some of you may know as well. Uh, let me pray. Lord, Thank you for your goodness and your mercy and love in all things in our lives. We rejoice in that. I just uh, feel like we've worshipped already this morning in amazing ways with the music and bringing glory to you in this Advent season. We thank you for that. And uh, I just pray that my words uh, would bring glory to you in this time together this morning. Um, in thinking about the history of, of your church, I did looked at some of the conference uh, writings about the, the, the church. Um, the first meeting of the church was in 1887, obviously among Swedish people. Some of you may not be aware that this was a Swedish uh, church at one time. Uh, they met in the back of a store in uh, downtown Lincoln. And then there was, came a time of revival, of real revival. And in those days, there would be a traveling pastor that would come and have special meetings. And there was a pastor that came from Stromsburg. His name was C.A. Falk. Uh, and there was a kind of a mini revival that took place in the life of the church at that time. It was said that this, and this was a quote from one of the books that was there, there was a spiritually warm attitude which prevailed in the services so that like on the day of Pentecost, the news and the presence of the Holy Spirit brought large gathering to the services so that they needed a new place to meet. So it was that God was moving in an amazing ways in this group, and that was in 1887. And the membership, it said, grew to uh, more than 40 people, and they were part of the Swedish Mission uh, Church uh, of organization of churches in Nebraska of like-minded Swedish immigrants. But then came the Depression of 1889 that hit many that were living in Lincoln, and there was a the depression that hit and, and people left the city going back to where they came and the church fell on hard times then as well. And then in order to keep the church afloat, 
uh, financially, uh, they approached the Congregationalists, the Swedish Congregationalists in uh, eastern Nebraska for a loan, but the caveat of that loan was that they had to become Congregationalists. For a time, this church was a Congregational church, and then in and 1892, the day that we celebrate today, 130 years ago, it was December 16th, seven people gathered together and formed what would be the Covenant Church here in Lincoln. There were just several that signed that initial uh, charter. And um, the Congregationalists had said, if we loan you money, you're going to become Congregationalists, and, uh, but then they became the covenant, again, became affiliated with the, the uh, Swedish mission uh, as well. In 1897, then it's a little unclear, like a lot of history, a little unclear that the first church built was built at 19th and G Street. And then in 2001, a second building, and I don't understand how this would be just one block away at 20th and G Street, and they built a second building. The first pastor's name was J.M. Tilburg. It's interesting to think about this young man, apparently, that came to be the first pastor of this group that was gathered together. And this is what it says in one of the histories. It says, the first regularly installed pastor was certainly a key figure in getting the work started in Lincoln. He was called without any stated salary. Can you imagine that in this days? He and his wife labored tirelessly in organizing the work of the church during his pastorate the Sunday school program was begun, the choir, the ladies' sewing society, a young people's uh, uh, society was also started during those early, early years. And then the record says that when he resigned in 1897, after five years, he was the pastor, the Sunday school superintendent, and the collector, whatever that was, I don't know, maybe the treasurer of the church. Can you imagine then, after five years, he he left, uh, and, and uh, sometimes we as pastors complain about being overworked, but I can't imagine what it was for that, uh, that young man uh, as well in uh, the life of the, of the church. And so it was that the women of the church were very vital. It's only in the later years that women have been recognized as pastors in the life of the church, but it was in the early years here, the, the women of the church, and mostly because they did, weren't working, were fundraisers. They really kept the, the work and ministry of the church going. There was something called the Birthday Kensington. I never could figure out what, what that was, but it was kind of a sewing circle. And they said that sometimes there were as many as 50 that were there in that, uh, that ministry in the life of the church. And in the 1940s, it says there were 146 in the Sunday school. Isn't that incredible that, 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 hap, uh, that all that happened in those early years? But then, in 1962, it is where your story and my story come together. For it was in 1962 that I, I graduated from high school in Wahoo. My home church is the Swedberg Covenant Church just up the road here came to Lincoln and became a part of something called the Covenant Club. Fascinating coming together just this very week that I was contacted by the Covenant Archives to give a, a resume of what Covenant Club was about because it was very unique in the ministry 
of, of churches as well for what this church uh, did. It came about because the archivist heard that, uh, that through a young man that I was mentoring, uh, and that he, I talked about the Covenant Club and how influential that was in my life. And so I was contacted to give a story, and it'll be in the Covenant archives, uh, an oral story from my interpretation of the Covenant Club and how you, not you, but your ancestors, maybe your parents or grandparents, rather, before you, influence the lives of many of us as young people at that particular time. And it was a very intentional ministry on the part of the church to reach out to students that came to the university at that particular point. Uh, again, from the uh, history of the church, it says the young people's work of the church was somewhat unique in the annals of co conference churches in that it had uh, no elected officers but the church, this arrangement made uh, in order to accommodate many members and friends of covenant churches of neighboring cities who came to Lincoln each year to attend the state university. The church intentionally reached out to minister to people like me and so many others that came. Large audiences of young people have been gathering to the services, it is said, giving a spiritual and social center for such students and working girls, it says, but it would be college and career young men as well, as local young people who attend the services. The church in Lincoln has an important mission to fill, not only in ministering to its immediate constituency, but also in extending its ministry to many who visit the capital city of the state, who spend nine months of the year in its colleges and universities. They saw young people that came to the city as their mission field. And it touched the lives of so many of us along the way. In the 1950s, my brother Bob had been, he said he was president of Covenant Club here. Uh, the intent of Covenant Club had many uh, aspects. It was fellowship, first of all, for young people that gather together in a safe environment. It was um, on, they, we met on Sunday night because the those that live in the dormitories, there was a, a supper on Sunday night. So the church here would have supper. And we met in the homes. People opened their homes, especially meaningful in my life, Roy and Thelma Carlson and Russ, and I think his wife's name was Dorothy Nelson, were the leaders. There was a Sunday school class for us. And we had a gospel team that would travel around. That was in the day when there were Sunday night services, and I remember going to various uh, communities uh, with, with singing, and also this was a test out of our own of our own ministry. There's kind of a humorous event that it came into my life. I was uh, asked to speak in Aurora. It was a Sunday night, and uh, I was really uh, nervous, and I had written out all my what I was going to say. I had a little. A speech that I was supposed to give or a little sermonette or something. And um, I made a mistake in that in writing this out, I, I said, that I came to the place where John 3.16, and I said, and we, as we all know, the words of John 3.16, and my, wife, my mind went totally blank. <laughs> and I said, well, you all know what it is anyhow. <laughs> and after the service, um, a, uh, a man came up, his name was Maury Palmberg, came up with his son, Kurt, who was about four years old, 
And he said, would you tell Lyle the Don 316? And he rattled it off for me. Uh, but it was a, a wonderful growing experience that we would uh, not only receive what it is that you offered to us, but able to give that and to share that with others. We had several retreats uh, as, as well in uh, various uh, times. My first real sermon was in Omaha at the last church that I had served, First Covenant Church, uh, was at that uh, point there. Uh, the word that I used when I talked about the ministry of Covenant Club was formative. You folks, your predecessors, were so formative in the life of many of us. Part of my call to ministry, Glenn Palmberg, who was the president of our denomination, he was a part of, of Covenant Club here. And I remember going into the seminary uh, one weekend. We had several of us from Covenant Club went in, and, and it was there we felt the call of God into the ministry. You know, it underscores for me, sometimes the things that we kind of take for granted can have an impact on the lives of other people. I've had experiences of people coming back to me as a pastor, and uh, I, something I said or something that I did meant so much to them. And I don't think that the folks that 50, 60 years ago, when we first were a part of this, realized how formative that ministry was in the life of all of us. And that's the way for some of you that might be Sunday school teachers and choir leaders uh, with the children's choir. We never know the impact that we might have when we can begin our days and say, God, use me. Use me today for, for your glory. And then again, 56 years ago, coming back to this place and the wedding, we've got on our coffee table pictures of the church here and our wedding uh, in our wedding book that is, is there, and the church, again, being so supportive for us in our life. That's looking back. Now looking ahead. Looking ahead at the text from what Paul wrote in Colossians 3, 1 to 4, the best is yet to come. These verses from uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says this, since then you have been raised with Christ Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is Advent. We sang these wonderful songs, the Advent songs and the Christmas songs. It is uh, the advent of Christ coming into our world, first on in Bethlehem, and the expectation that we live with as his children that, of his coming uh, again. We've died to the old, but the new is coming, and we live in that ex uh, expectation. It's wonderful, the motto of the church here, disciples making disciples, because the very last words of Jesus on this life uh, were these words, he came in them and to his disciples and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Therefore, go and make what? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this passage that Paul is talking about here is to the church at Colossae 
Uh, he's teaching them. What does this really mean? How do you live this out? What does it mean that you to live in uh, Christ? To the newly baptized. Now again, because all of them were uh, new adult believers, they would be baptized in the water, maybe of the Jordan or of other places. And the symbolism, again, of, of the immersion baptism is you go under the water, you die, and then raised again to new life. The old is gone, the old life is washed away, and now comes the cleansing. Now there's kind of an interesting passage here in, in what Paul is writing between these two verses, these verses is a kind of a sandwich of how they're supposed to live. And uh, in the uh, second chapter, uh, Paul talks about behavior, how to live. And he says this, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, as though you still belong to the world, don't submit to its rules. Do not handle or do not taste or do not touch. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of, they have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, but their false humility uh, has no value in restraining sensual indulgence. He said, put that all aside. You're not that anymore. That's part of the old life. Now, how, why would he say that and, uh, and incorporate that uh, into uh, his teaching about what it was to be a Christian after they had been newly baptized? But then he goes on to say this. He said, we have, for you have died to the old life and are hidden now in Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then uh, you will appear with him in glory. This is the, you're all new. But then Paul goes on to write this. He says this, put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, and idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So he said, put away those things. But now, in Christ, he talks about behavioral issues again. It's interesting that the early covenanters were influenced by pietism, German pietism. And uh, pietism and being pious has a kind of a bad no a connotation these days. You know, you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good, sometimes people say, and if you're pious, it's kind of a bad thing. But piety was that you lived out your faith, that there was a life change in who you were and how you acted toward each other and, and, and your behavior. Uh, uh, and so what, what is, how do we put this together? Paul is saying the old way, legalism, was trying to earn God's place, earn his way. But it is because we have now died to the old and the new, we are called to live out with joy what it is that God has done in our life. The mission, friends, was a life movement, emphasizing changed lives and behavior when Jesus was a part of their life. Now, some of us, I don't know, not many as many more, have live Christmas trees in our house. And used to be that's all that we had. Now we have plastic ones. But if you have a live Christmas tree, they look wonderful. Uh, they get all decorated and beautiful and the smell wonderful in the house. But then we realize that it, that tree is, is dead. We have to artificially keep it alive. We have to water it. And then 
in January, in the middle of January, it's at the curb for the trash to pick it up. Paul is saying the old way of life was a little bit like that. We just decorate our lives of the way we appear. But it is that in Christ we are new. It is a response and outgoing. Or suppose that uh, some of you loaned me $1,000 and I was coming into hard times and I was having a hard time paying it back and finally I saved up enough money and grudgingly gave it back to you. And uh, that would be a different attitude than I suppose you had saved my life. And you had... um, in some way or other, and I wanted to reward you or show you something, and I gave you $1,000, my attitude would be totally different. And Paul is saying that that's the way we live out as Christians, is because we have been saved in the blood of Jesus Christ, we have that hope, and we now can give joyfully. Holy living, then, is a response. And so we know that the best is yet to come because of what God has done for us in our lives. We, with the early members of the mission churches and of this church, were people of hope. People that lived and served and gave out of the love of Jesus. Not because we wanted to earn something, we wanted to impress somebody. Now that our motives always, we all recognize, are mixed up, mixed sometimes. But it is because the love of Jesus calls us to look to the future as people of hope. The early mission friends wanted to share that joy. Somebody has said very few people are argued into the kingdom, but more are loved into the kingdom. And that love has been shown in Jesus Christ. It has been shown from the legacy of this church to people like me and so many others of us that felt that love from the church. We are people of hope. The best is yet to come. We live that out of what Christ has done in our life. It's maybe a little bit of a trite illustration that sometimes we people, the pastors use, but the story of a, of a woman who was diagnosed that she had a very short time to live. And she wanted to make arrangements for her funeral and she met with her pastor. And he, she said, I have a very unusual request. I want to be buried with a fork in my hand. You probably have heard this before. And the pastor said, we certainly will do that, but why why do you want that? And she said, well, we've all had church suppers here so many times, and we say when we're clearing off the table, save your fork because the best is yet to come, the dessert. And so it is for us. The best is yet to come to come. Not just Christmas as we celebrate, the presents will be opened and put away, but the best is yet to come when we are called home and when Jesus comes back to this life. We are people of hope because the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Lord, how you have worked in our lives in so many ways and and ways that we don't always know. And we pray that they've always been positive what it is that you have shown to us in our life. I thank you for the work and ministry of this church, of how it has gone forward over the years and continues. And and I just pray for all of its leaders and direction and discernment from you of what it is that uh, you would have for them. And we know for all of us that in Christ we have died to the old and 
and live to the new now because the best is yet to come. We are people of hope and optimism because of your love and mercy and grace in our lives. We ask this in your name.